This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And I'm doing something a little bit topical today. So just to give you a little bit of context. If you're not listening to this from the UK, the sort of insanity in Britain this week is that the Sun newspaper has accused an unknown or unnamed, sorry, um, television celebrity of some sexual offence um and there is a, a kind of like a hysteria over naming this person the only problem of course is that the person who is who is supposedly the victim has said the story is complete nonsense uh, and now it kind of limps along like some sort of kind of undead urban myth okay so that's the first part of the context the other part of the context is that veteran rocker and uh well rock star uh, and uh, entertainer and kind of national treasure Elton John is uh, now performing his last you know, concerts ever. He's on his on his farewell tour and sort of lit up the pyramid stage at Glastonbury only recently. So these two things together put me in mind of a, a particular incident in British media history um, in 1989 of the um, the libel the, the biggest ever libel payout against the Sun newspaper from Elton John. And so today we're looking in uh, the Faber Book of Pop, which is an amazing anthology of pop music and rock music history, um, uh, about this particular episode. The reason for this is because it it tells us a a powerful, powerful story uh, about the, um, the kind of the... The, the way in which Britain has been run through um, through the, the right-wing tabloid media for the, the past sort of 40 years or so, and the impunity 
with which it operates an impunity which is perhaps coming to an end but we we shall see anyway let's let's explore the Faber book of pop and the uh, journalist who wrote this uh, article for the anthology is the journalist John Sweeney and John Sweeney writes sleazy sleazy is not the word sleazy comes nowhere to conveying the full ripeness of the Apollo Club members only perched in a Soho attic there had just been a fight outside on the street. The loser, a fresh-faced lad, breathing fast, pleads for admission. There are bottles out there, but the pig-neck bouncer is having none of it. You're not coming in here, getting Larry with me, son. Inside the ambience owes something to a motorway service station urinal. No women are in sight, no one comes to the Apollo for a chat, or indeed the view. A side-on glimpse of the squeaky clean Swiss centre through matte black windows and grubbier windows. Elderly businessmen tinker with their gins and tonics. Smut-moustached young men look on, waiting to be picked up, as bored, tesco, uh, as, bored as Tesco checkout girls. They drink, smile queasily and then hit the streets. It was at the Apollo in early 1987 that the story of Britain's biggest libel action began when the Sun newspaper got in touch with the rent boy turned pimp Graham X, who frequented the club. There followed a series of stories about the rock singer Elton John. The stories, based on Graham X's souped-up confessions, were as untrue as they were nasty. The first Elton and Vice Boys scandal, published on Wednesday the 25th of February 1987, contains the gist of all that was to come. Graham X confessed to supplying Elton John with, and Billy Gaff, a pot manager, with at least ten youngsters, who each were paid a minimum of £100, plus all the cocaine they could stand. Elton sued. The Sun printed more and nastier stories. Elton sued again and again, issuing in all 17 writs against the Sun from February to September 1987. The writs led, last Christmas, to a grovelling front-page apology by the Sun. It is a grisly and sorry tale, from the rent boys who lied to the son's money to an incredulous RSPCA inspector who was asked to investigate the case of the dogs that didn't bark. John Sweeney writes, It started with a tip-off at the beginning of the year. The son was told by one of its regular sneaks, paid on a story-by-story basis, that a good-looking teenage rent boy with an angelic face could be sitting on a cracker of a story. The sneak pocketed his money and disappeared from view. The son left word at the Apollo that it wanted to get in touch with the rent boy later to be called Graham X, but who was known um, up west, that is, uh, in the West End, as Barry Alexander or American Barry. It is, uh, it is a peculiarly common feature of young people who have broken from their families to claim that they are American or that their family has moved to America. His real name is Stephen Hardy. No one should be in the least bit surprised that the son was interested in the kiss-and-tell stories of a male prostitute. Britain's most profitable newspaper has built its massive sales at roughly four and a quarter million. By the way, they are nothing like that now, and the uh, son uh, has uh, failed to turn a profit for at least two of the last years. Um, roughly four and a half, four and a quarter million, uh, more than, um, than ten times as many as those of the Independent, on a diet of virulent xenophobia and soft pornography, all streaked with a slickness which is the hallmark of its editor, Calvin McKenzie. McKenzie comes from a family of journalists in South London. On his first paper as a cub reporter, he was sick over the editor's suede shoes. 
Such stories have lent weight to the cartoon view of Mackenzie that he's just a sewer-mouth jobbo, but Mackenzie is a brilliant tabloid editor and perhaps the most powerful journalist in the country. Under his stewardship, the Sun disproportionately admired um, the, the Sun is disproportionately admired in Fleet Street as a well-made thing. It makes for a repulsive but fascinating read, poured over by 13 million Britons a day. 13 million people in Britain every day in the 1980s read this newspaper and the 1990s and into the 2000s. And it goes a long way to offering explanations about the kind of social and cultural history of Britain in the past 30 or, or 40 years. Um, perhaps when the sun is dead and buried um, and the uh, the Murdoch Empire has divested itself of it, as I, I presume it will do once Rupert Murdoch has passed away, um, Perhaps there will be a, a more profound um, understanding or reckoning with um, the, 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 the sun's influence on Great Britain um, and its sort of uh, degradation of, of, of British public life. Stephen Hardy, of course, uh, was and is a regular sun reader. Everybody who reads it hasn't got a GCSE between them, he told me. I'm fairly rubbishing at least one reader, the sun's editor, who had one GCE and O-level in art. Hardy, exi- Hardy um, existed and to an extent still does in a world of rapidly shifting loyalties and fuzzily transmitted reality. In 1987, when he was not quite 20, he was living in Twyford, Berkshire, but making frequent trips up west. Hardy is a blonde, slightly built sharp dresser whose surfeit of identities comes in handy in his line of business. He often speaks with an American accent, although prosaically, He originally came from a small village somewhere off the M1 near Nottingham. An adopted child, he says that he had been expelled from four schools before posing naked in a male porn magazine. He was paid £100 for the first nude modelling job in 1983 when he was a baby-faced 16. I was on the streets and had nowhere to go, he says. It was either that or sleeping with people. Nothing Hardy says should be taken as gospel, but clearly his childhood could hardly have been described as conventionally happy. Suspecting that there may be, might be money in it, Hardy followed up the son's approach and phoned Craig McKenzie on the paper's bizarre column, which features pop gossip and singles charts. Craig McKenzie, who lives in the shadow of his editor brother, has since left the son to join the Daily Express. In 1987, Craig, whose son nickname was Bouncing Bogbrush, was in a hurry, anxious to prove himself his own man. The old nursery competitiveness between brothers Mackenzie partly explains why neither of them ever dared to get off the ruinous track that they are on. It was to cost the son proprietor, Rupert Murdoch, a million pounds in damages and probably half as much again in costs. When Hardy told Craig Mackenzie on the phone, what Hardy told Craig Mackenzie on the phone was sufficiently promising for a son team to roar into the forecourt of Twyford Railway Station in uh, Berkshire in a black Porsche. Hardy was impressed, as the journalists had intended. At the time, Hardy was working as a laundry presser in the village, earning £120 a week, and living in a council house with his then-girlfriend and their baby son. Hardy told Craig McKenzie that he'd been to several parties thrown by Rod Stewart's former manager, Billy Gaff, at his great Gatsby in the home county's Kitch Manor in Finchampstead, near Elton John's Windsor home, and not far from Hardy's Twyford Council House. Hardy also told a lurid story about the supplying of other rent boys 
uh, an expenses uh, paid trip to New York and vast cocaine consumption. Gaff's name cropped up in a, num- a number of times, but Elton John's name was only mentioned as someone who was on the fringe of the scene. Billy Gaff is one of the great 70s rock managers, embodying all the vivid platform-sold excesses of the era before the greater 80s. An interesting, somewhat hyperactive, um, an interesting, somewhat hyperactive mixture of voluble Irishman and Hollywood camp, he made his first fortune managing Rod Stewart. Gaff went on to repeat his success uh, by managing John Cougar Mellencamp, a hugely popular American singer in the Bruce Springsteen mould. Although Gaff and Elton John knew each other, Gaff is a great deal closer to Elton's manager, a Scottish terrier of a man called John Reed. Both men are gay. A friend of mine went to a couple of Billy Gaff's parties at roughly the same time as Hardy. One of the features of both parties was the presence of a uh, a not of effete, sweet-faced young men looking lost. Now those that have even kind of followed the news in passing in Britain in the last 10 years will be aware of generational scandals of uh, predatory celebrities preying on young men and young women uh, in in these sorts of circumstances and even even darker uh, darker kind of um, circumstances, so the 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 kind of the context of this story is sort of hardly hardly surprising. John Sweeney writes, a story linking rent boys with Billy Gaff, whether true or untrue, would not cut much eyes with the Sun's readers, to whom Gaff was hardly a household name. It was the name Elton John which crackled in the Sun journalist's ears. Elton John was what Hardy's new customers wanted to hear, so that's what they got. Hardy was sent a rail ticket and invited down to Wapping to meet the editor. Hardy had a good recollection of the fateful meeting. He had, a bra- he had to brave the uh, NGA pickets uh, at the time. The print workers' union were picketing um, Wapping, where Rupert Murdoch had moved the, um, the uh, production process um, and um, digitised it and laid off um, print workers and, and typesetters and, and that, that sort of thing. Um, the, uh, the the print workers were still screaming, the uh, strikers were still screaming scab almost a year, after almost a year of standing outside the NATO issue razor wire of Rupert Murdoch's massive print plant. In the room were the brothers Mackenzie and the paper's then deputy editor David Shapland, who had since left to run a sports features agency. Hardly got, Hardy got on um, all right with Craig McKenzie and Shapland, but he did not warm to the editor. I didn't like his attitude. One minute he was a semi-Australian hard-talking guy, the next he was like a puppy. To help Craig McKenzie, who had the responsibility of turning out the bizarre column, Sunwriter Neil Wallace was drafted into, drafted into the Elton John investigation. Wallace had previously worked on the Sun's gutter rival, the Daily Star, where he was billed uh, with, becoming, um, modest, uh, with becoming modesty as the world's greatest reporter. Fleet Street, had, uh, Fleet Street legend has it that Wallace, a jovial Mancunian nicknamed Wolfman because of his lupine beard, is something of a chancer. As far as the press council goes, the mythology does not bear close examination. According to the council, Wallace is cited in only one adjudication in recent years for the story entitled this child was told Chris, um, Christmas joy is evil, a minor classic of the genre. As it happens, the press council rejected the complaint against Wallace and the paper that he then worked for. A mole at the sun takes up the story. 
After two weeks of, in, of investigation, Wallace and Craig McKenzie felt they were 90% sure that something untoward had gone on at Billy Gaff's house and that drugs were in abundance. Kelvin nagged them for a date. They had rough dates, but nothing specific. Eventually, they settled on a specific date, which proved to be a big mistake. Needless to say, there was no discussion whether it was a, a just story to run. No one at the Sun discusses morality. It's worth stopping to reflect um, this for a moment that the kinds of things we're talking about here of making unfounded accusations, making uh, libelous accusations, um, happen on, on a kind of uh, a regular basis. They happen so so often that it's, it's almost a kind of it's an, almost like an industrial process, and that newspapers like the Sun can take million pound hits and often don't mind doing so because they sell, you know, in excess of many multiples of that in advertising space and sales revenue. Thing also is that this happens routinely to ordinary people, people without Elton John's resources. Um, and there has been, even uh, following uh, the, the kind of the almost death of the tabloid industry, in um, 2011, during the the Leveson inquiry, the, where they had a um, the, the the entire system had a near death experience, um, on a, a separate scandal, perhaps we'll talk about another time. Um, helpful governments, which are kind of intimately connected to, and both are Labour and Conservative, intimately connected with the the the, the, the tabloid industry, and they have a symbiotic relationship with, um, help their old friends out. On the eve of publication, Mackenzie had an intimation of disaster. The front page, front page splash had been um, made up, in every sense of the word. Elton John in Vice Boys Scandal. He stood in front of it, admiring his handiwork. Right then, he said, "Let's let's fucking go for it, Elton John. We're going down the pan. We're all going down the pan." And with that, he held his beaky nose and mimicked the pulling of a lavatory chain. The gesture was to prove prophetic. The story dated Wednesday the 25th of uh, February 1987, carried two bylines uh, by Craig McKenzie and Neil Wallace, and was in traditional Sun style. The singer, the Sun alleged, snorted cocaine while begging tattooed skinheads to indulge in bondage. Everything was based on uncorroborated, uh, the uncorroborated, um, uncorroborated evidence of a rent boy, and rent boys are notoriously bad witnesses. Uh, who now says 90% of it uh, was untrue? according to Hardy. I would give them a line and they would write it up. It was a manufactured story. The final paragraph of the front page story um, put the usual gutter tabloid po-faced sanctimony in the mouth of Graham X. I am ashamed of what I did. I am speaking to uh, speaking out now to show how widespread this sort of thing is and to warn other gullible young kids to steer clear of people like these. The story failed to add that Sun had paid Graham £2,000 for his altruism and was to pay him another £250 a week for the next twelve few months. John Sweeney writes, For people of my generation in their 30s, this is obviously going back a bit, Elton Hercules John is the Vera Lynn de, no, de, de nos jours. Songs like Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting provided the noise wallpaper for our parties and teenage discos. More than Elton, born Reginald Keith Dwight, more than that, Elton, born Reginald Keith Dwight, did not, as Jagger and Lennon did, become a tax exile and disappear off into megastardom. A new year is full of surprises. 
But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. He therefore occupies a homely, warm place in our affections. He is judged ideologically, he is judged ideologically cuddly enough to be the first Western rock star to play in the Soviet Union and visit China. And although he had pink hair long before Johnny Rotten gobbed and shocked at journalists, Elton was a friend of Prince Andrew and would willingly fly 12,000 miles to see his beloved Watford, the football club he owns, achieve a goalless draw against Charlton Athletic. Elton's essential homeliness wasn't in the least compromised by his admission in 1976 he was bisexual. There's nothing wrong with going to bed with someone, somebody of your own sex. Such honesty by a public figure marked a departure from the traditional closeted mentality which imprisoned many showbiz homosexuals. It was rewarded by mass chanting of Elton John's a proof by opposing football fans. Sorry for the homophobic language, but we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, referencing how kind of people have spoken in the past, but there you go. And these were chants that he braved. Facing up to this potentially destructive experience, he had, uh, had a lot to do with the robustness with which he took the sun head on a decade later. He is not, however, an angel. His lifestyle in the early 70s, when he was at the peak of his success, might well have excited the moral seraphim at the sun if they had been minded to pore over it in any great detail. Rumours about him have even reached the ears of the royal family. According to a recent biography of him, at a concert at at the Rainbow in North London in aid of the the Queen's Silver Jubilee Trust in 1977, Elton John was asked by by Princess Alexandra in the backstage conversation do take cocaine. The princess later apologised for the indiscretion. But when the sun struck in 1987, Elton had been married um, to recording engineer Renate Blauer for more than three years. It was well known that the marriage, which was to end effectively that spring, was in trouble, but he had more than his own reputation to protect. Moreover, he was completely innocent of the charges Hardy made. The police later looked into the allegations, but no action was taken. No one came, uh, who came into regular contact with rent boys, such as the charities who look after them or the vice squad, had ever heard Elton John being talked about by a punter by the boys on the streets. Elton was a wronged man. When the story broke, the rock star was in Australia, recovering from an operation on a growth in his throat, which at one time he feared was cancerous. Friends, including it is said Mick Jagger, advised him to ride the storm. If he were to sue, the sun might go looking for dirt. It's a nasty consideration that keeps many public figures at bay. Nevertheless, the sort of mud the sun was flinging has a habit of sticking. The first to dump Elton was Cadbury's, who had bought him up uh, to front a major promotional campaign for their chunky nut uh, bar, dairy milk, whole nut and fruit nut and nut chocolate. The pop star was no stranger to the High Court, having the year before 
won almost five million after suing his first music publisher, Dick James, over song rights. The Sun was totally unprepared for the force of Elton John, Elton's counterattack. Elton later told the Daily Express, They can say I'm a fat old sod, they can say I'm an untalented bastard, they can call me a puff, but they mustn't lie about me. The first writ from Elton's solicitor, Frank Pressland, of the solicitor's Frere Chormley, were, was, so issued, was issued so fast that the second Graham X story on the Thursday the 26th of February was printed with the caption, The story they're all suing over. Schadenfreude is nowhere in, in indulging um, is nowhere indulged in with more glee than in Fleet Street. On the same day that the Sun published its second story, the Daily Mirror's almighty four-letter front-page headline screamed lies, with the subline the subheadline, "I was in New York and I can prove it," says pop superstar. The Mirror story by John Blake showed that the on, uh, that on the only specific date mentioned in the Sun's original Graham X story linking Elton with the Rent Boys on the 30th of April 1986, Elton was in New York being whisked about in a limousine. The Mirror had the receipts. More intriguing still was a vanishing story trailed by in the Sun. At the bottom of the first orgy story published on the 25th was a white on black block signposting uh, the, ne- the, the next day's scoop tomorrow Elton's pink tutu party the story never appeared it probably fell victim to the large holes which were beginning to appear in Graham X's evidence witnesses were piling up to say that they had never seen Elton John at Billy Gaff's parties never in fact seen him at Billy Gaff's house but the son's game plan was, uh, was to keep hitting Elton so hard that he, that he would give up long before a judge had heard the matter the second front page splash on Thursday the 26th of February, of February was headlined Elton's Kinky Kinks, um, followed on pages four and five by Elton's Drug Capers. The Sun was claiming, among other things, that, Elton's de- uh, that Elton demanded that young male prostitutes found for him um, should be drugged with vast amounts of coke before they could be brought to his bed. Elton sued. The following day, on Friday the 27th of February, the Sun printed, You're a liar, Elton. Elton sued again. One man who was so, who was concerned about the story was Rupert Murdoch. According to a son mole, Murdoch treats Mackenzie with the affection shown by a teacher to the naughtiest boy in class, whom he has to punish but secretly admires the most. He has been known to call Mackenzie my little Hitler. But when the writ started to fly, there were worries that Elton would boycott Murdoch own, the Murdoch-owned TV, television outlets. Sun reporters were soon trading versions of a phone call described by Mackenzie in his booming voice. The story is that Mackenzie was woken at home in the wee hours of the night by the familiar Australian voice calling from one of five continents when News International owns things. Murdoch. Kelvin, are we alright in this Elton John business? Mackenzie? Yes, boss. Murdoch. Alright. Click. The brevity of the phone call, it is said, left Kelvin twitching with worry. Another man who lost sleep over the Elton, uh, Elton in Vice Boy scandal was John Boyce. Boyce is a Scottish con man, gay pimp and former rent boy who went to the same school as John Reed, Elton's manager. Asked about his criminal record, Boyce told a Thames television journalist, the largest amount of convictions I've got is for fraud. I've got nine convictions for fraud and I've got one for attempted murder. This was the saviour the son turned to in its hour of need. Boyce had been toying with the idea of flogging a rent boy story to the tabloids and was horrified to see the prospect of good money slipping into someone else's hands. When the first Graham X story uh, broke, 
He phoned the son immediately offering his services as a go-between. Boyce was willing to hunt down rent boys and secure affidavits from them which would support the thrust of the son's allegations for a price. Boyce, who worked out of a gay pub in Manchester, had been brought up by a former people journalist called um, Terry Lovell. Lovell is writing a book about, uh, about the affair, so Boyce was unavailable for interview with the Independent magazine. Um, where this article was originally written. Lovell, who broke the Harry Proctor uh, spanking story and many other sordid revelations with Rent Boys, has junked his £37,000 a job before the people after having found God. He now works for Christian Bookseller Review. Lovell told the UK Press Gazette, I honestly could take no more. The cheating, the lying, the conniving and the utter pointlessness of many of the stories I was no longer able to justify. Being born again did not prevent Lovell from taking a modest fee for introducing Boyce to the Thames Television Thames Televisions this week. The uncut interview at the Apollo Club between the granite jawed Thames reporter Lindsay Charlton and John Boyce is made of its is a model of its kind, as this section shows. Boyce. Basically the whole idea was uh, at the beginning of it was to get people to dig dirt against Elton John and Charlton. What sort of statement did they want? Boyce. Basically, they wanted to crown the guy, and he was in the honours list at the time. So they, the son, turned around and says to me, they says, by the way, can you dig up any kind of crap on the guy? And we used to bring people to hotel rooms so that they would tell us that they had an affair with Elton John, and, you know, I meant it was all pure crap. Boyce's um, attitude to to his work um, was that it was a nice little learner. He was paid £1,750 for each affidavit, passing on about £500 to each rent boy signed up. Not all the rent boys got £500 promised by boys. Not all the signatories had ever been rent boys, and it transpired none of them had ever done anything that they, uh, that they told boys they had done with Elton John. After a couple of weeks, the son realised it had been had and stopped paying boys. Having cut its losses with Boyce, the paper redoubled its efforts to get dirt on Elton John, as Mick Jagger had predicted. The Sun's Elton John squad included Wallace and its Midlands reporter Andrew Parker. According to the Sun Mole, they scoured the planet. Elton's solicitors started to get reports from places as far as uh, parts as Melbourne, Manchester, Los Angeles, Scotland and London. The strangers were making inquiries about the star's sexual history and habits. Meanwhile, in Twyford... All was not well with the Hardy household. It had taken the rest of Fleet Street about 24 hours to trace American Barry to his council house, but as yet no one had got a picture of him. The sun blanked out his face uh, in Elton's kinky kinks to preserve his anonymity. It is part of the Samurai Code of Honour among tabloids that when one paper buys up a contact and keeps his identity secret, all others must do their damnedest to find out who he is and print the worst. The siege moved on block to the house of Hardy's girlfriend's parents in a cul-de-sac just off the A4. What I was saying earlier about you know ordinary people being demolished by these sorts of things. Um, there you go. The son decided to get Hardy, um, girlfriend and baby, out of the country before he was questioned too closely by the opposition, with the Daily Mirror at the head of the pack. The Sun's Thames Valley reporter, John Askill, a large man nicknamed the Jolly Jolly Green Giant, was detailed to babysit the Hardys. But first, the Sun had to get them out of the cul-de-sac and off to the airport. The Fleet Street pack had parked outside the house, hoping to take snatch pics of Hardy uh, as Hardy was moved out. The Jolly Green Giant rose to the occasion. 
Hardy, always acutely conscious of how he dresses, recalls the episode with genuine hurt. Askell wrapped me up in a balaclava and a scarf, put a blanket over my head, and when we came out of the house, Askell left me standing there with his uh, with a blanket over my head, looking stupid as he said, Hello, to all his mates and, and the other newspapers. Next four taxis, hired by the sun, arrived and blocked off the cul-de-sac, parting like the Red Sea to let the sun's car out, but closing again to stop his car, um, to, to stop the pack from following. However, one of the opposition reporters had parked his car on the A4, so, epic, so an epic car chase across the home counties followed. The chase meant that when the sun, had fi- uh, sun car finally uh, lost the opposition, his passengers had missed their flights to Spain. Hardy, girlfriend, baby and Askill flew to Paris instead. They spent four days at the Hotel Sofitel at Charles de Gaulle Airport near Paris. Then they flew first class to Malaga before driving to the five-star Melia Don Pepe in Marbella. Hardy was greatly chuffed. It was really, it, it really was high living, but after a while, the foreign lifestyle lost, lost its appeal. The girlfriend didn't want to feed her baby on Spanish baby food, so a woman's son reporter flew out with fresh dogs bought from a proper British supermarket. Before returning, the exiles spent a couple of days in Gibraltar, where Hardy took the sun's man, uh, the sun man's uh, picture famed against the rock. All in all, Hardy spent a month abroad at the sun's expense. Back in Britain, the troll for filth on Elton John had finally come up with something. Tom Petrie, the Sun's news editor, had to get a thick wad of used readies for an exchange which was something like something out of a Le Carre novel. The trade-off took place underneath the Stark searchlights outside the Sun's whopping fortress before the mystery supplier refused point-blank to enter the plant. Because What the Sun got for its money were three Polaroid photographs depicting Elton John in, first, a full frontal nude shot, secondly, warmly cuddling another man, and thirdly, the man and Elton John in a compromising position. David Chaplin, the picture's deputy editor, the paper's de- deputy editor, was heard to say, I've got a lot of Elton John tapes in my Porsche, but I now can't bear to listen to them. The Polaroids were deeply embarrassing for Elton, who'd never lived a life of monastic sobriety, but they were not supporting evidence that of the original Graham X story that Elton used rent boys. The man in the photographs was a consenting adult, not a rent boy. The pictures were taken in the late 70s or very early 80s, long before Elton was married. The Sun made sure Elton saw the Polaroids before they were published. It was, the paper thought, a knockout punch. Calvin McKenzie was convinced that Elton would fold. Someone who was, who was close to Elton at the time told me. Elton realised those photographs looked pretty bad for him, but they didn't have anything to do with Graham X. There was a lot of pressure on Elton to settle with the Sun, but he said no. Elton showed tremendous guts. So, cut to the, the, the chase. Finally, at the end of all of this, Elton took the son to court and the son eventually was forced to pay um, a million pounds plus damages. And I was wrong at the start of the podcast. It wasn't 1989. It was 1988 that the case was concluded. Um, and the, uh, the uh, matter was, was laid to rest. But... What does this show? I mean, other than a kind of a a, a sort of a, a story of tabloid malfeasance, it it shows the impunity with which Britain's newspaper uh, industry is able to operate in the UK. And imagine that this happens to people without the resources to sue all the time. This is possible 
because of a very close relationship during the 1980s with between the Murdoch uh, Empire and other uh, right-wing um, uh, Fleet Street newspapers and the Conservative government. And the in the 1990s, late 1990s, the very cosy arrangements made between uh, New Labour uh, and the uh, the tabloid press. Uh, the it gives the tabloid press a, a, a disproportionate political, social, and cultural power in the United Kingdom, even though most people in Britain um, are you know fairly appalled by the idea of press intrusion. This is a country that really appreciates the idea of privacy. Um, and the idea that um, one's one, well, that, that private vices or pr- private um, behaviours can be held up as public vices, we may be approaching an an endpoint to all of this. But um, it's important not to not to kind of count your chickens before they've hatched. Really, uh, the sun might limp along for a considerable time to come. Anyway, I, I kind of like the Faber Book of Pop. It's a really interesting anthology, well worth uh, having on your shelf, uh, edited by Hanif Qureshi and John Savage. And I think I'll pop, kind of delve back into that, because it does present us, it's, it's less about, you know, Elton John or whoever else, and more a kind of a snapshot of British social and cultural history, and not, not just um, Great Britain either. Anyway, let's leave it there. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks, all the best. Bye-bye.